0: I learned pretty early on in life. I learned pretty early on in life how to be successful in the eyes of the people around me. Um, And truth be told, (laughs) I know this is going to sound a little bit almost boisterous. It's really self-righteous, but uh, let me just tell the story as it is. Uh, I was really good at that. You know how Paul talks about himself as sort of the Hebrew of Hebrews of the order of Gamaliel. I mean, like, listen, I was the Christian of Christians. I knew, I knew what it was like to be successful in the eyes of those around me. And that was in the church, that was outside of the church, that was in school, that was socially, that was in athletics, that was music. All of these things, I knew, I knew the stakes, I knew the rules, and I was really good at being successful in the eyes of those around me. I was, even as a kid, I remember in like first grade, second grade, third grade, I remember thinking, I'm picked first for these games. (laughs) We'd be on the playground and I was thinking, you know, I'm picked first for these games. I think that means something. I was picked first for the games in the playground. In in fifth grade, uh, I beat out all the sixth graders in our district for the the 50 states contest where you had to say them the fastest and step on each state. Uh, I remember I beat all the sixth graders for the district-wide spelling bee, truth, uh, and and all I got was a Scrabble game to to take home. I remember actually getting it and, and saying, I have four of these at home. In high school, in high school, uh, I was kind of Mr. Achievement, academically, socially, athletically, musically. And I remembered one time—I don't want to—and this is kind of an embarrassing story, but but it's true. I remember saying this. I just want to give you a picture of this. I remember one time my senior year, actually thinking these self-absorbed, remarkably self-absorbed words. I'm in high school, and I'm thinking, my name is literally written all over this school. On the cork boards, on awards, on plaques. About every two or three days you'd hear it over the intercom. I remember walking around my high school thinking, I rule this daggone school. (laughs) I remember actually feeling that way, kind of about it, like they're going to rename this Scott Wakefield High School someday. I didn't really think that. And there's not been any movement to rename Finneytown High School in Cincinnati to Scott Wakefield High School. My point is this. When you grow up with that kind of brash confidence, when you think about your future and being successful, you know what you think? (laughs) You think, what's all this fuss about life being hard? I mean, this life thing is easy. I got this licked. Got this. Well, that's kind of how I felt for a while. Uh, And then I became a pastor. I became a pastor, and I soon realized that I was in way over my head. (laughs) You can laugh. It's okay. (laughs) Being a pastor... And this isn't just something exclusive to being a pastor, but this is, this is something that, that is indicative of the whole Christian life. Being a pastor is a constant test of one's personal limits. Accepting the call to stand up and to have one's life sort of opened up and examined for all to see, to live in the fishbowl, as I like to say, is to knowingly, to wittingly step into a constant spiritual battle. And what I learned quickly in ministry is that God has placed me very intentionally and specifically in a situation where if I do not depend on God's Spirit to help me handle that task, I would easily and regularly be crushed under the weight of that call to shepherd the flock. And honestly, I, I mean frankly, I, I do often feel that way. I mean, feel, do you feel that way about situations in your life? About roles that you, that you have in life? About, about places you've been called to? Your responsibilities, you ever feel like, God, what you have called me to in this uh, is just plain beyond me. It's just plain beyond me to handle. This job that I'm a part of, this, this marriage relationship that I'm in, this parenting responsibility, I've just named three that is 90% of us. And we get in those situations, we get in it deep enough, we think, Lord, this is just plain beyond my ability to handle. And the truth of the matter is, you cannot handle that. That's how you feel about it. Because the truth is, you, you cannot handle that. And so, and so in the middle of that situation in life, along comes a well-meaning Christian who is trying to be encouraging. Let, let's grant that for sure. Trying to be encouraging. Um, but perhaps into your situation where, where you feel like I, I'm, I'm carrying this weight, I'm, I'm suffering under the weight of this, I, I cannot handle this. Into that situation, they insert something because they may not know what to say or maybe they have this on a plaque or they saw it on a bumper sticker or an internet meme or on Facebook. They say, oh, don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. A variation of it is uh, God will not let anything happen today that you and he can't handle together. And, and if you're in a situation in life where you are just playing at the end of your rope, you're experiencing a struggle that is defeating you, and you are already beyond your ability to handle that struggle, if somebody comes along to you and, and instead of s- smiling and they, they say this to you, they say God will never give you more than you can handle, instead of sort of smiling and saying, true, yes, isn't that, yes, uh, you, you kind of want to just plain... Sort of, and I don't, I don't condone this. But the feeling, the gut response is, I, I just want to punch you in the face. And here's why: because at that point, in the midst of your struggle, in the middle of your suffering, someone comes along and they have minimized your suffering as unimportant. And at that point, they have even questioned your faithfulness. What is wrong with you struggling like that? That's a little bit like what that communicates to people. When that happens, (coughs) instead of connectedness that helps us, (laughs) it's disconnectedness that makes us feel isolated. It's disconnectedness that makes us feel like, you know what, I guess I really am the only one. Now friends, if you've you've ever felt alone in your struggles and at the end of your ability to handle them, uh, then you are in good company. Uh, Congratulations, you are a human being. And the reality about life is that it is too much for us to handle. And people who think that they can handle it, You start to find more and more in life. People who think that they can handle it are mostly in denial. And you're in good company if that's where you are. That place where you realize, I am at the end of myself and I cannot take care of this. Because it's something that Paul himself expressed. And we're going to look at this in two different ways today. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians 10 eventually. But we're going to kind of tell you a little bit about the context for Paul in his personal life. As a normal thing in his life and in his ministry, Paul experienced a need for total dependence upon God because he was in the middle of circumstances that honestly not only stretched his ability to handle them, but that went far beyond his ability to handle them. It went beyond the limits of his ability to handle those situations. As a regular course of his life and his ministry, Paul experienced more than he could handle. Listen to 2 Corinthians 11. We'll put this on screen for just a second here. 2 Corinthians 11:24 to 28. This is Paul describing his sufferings, the situations he can't handle. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says this. I identify with this. This is good. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. There's another list just like this in the same book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 4 to 10. And he describes his sufferings as afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. And he underwent these things while being hungry, through dishonor, through slander, treated as impostors, as dying, as punished, sorrowful, poor. Can you imagine somebody coming along to Paul and just saying, Paul, God will never give you more than you can handle. Now the question for us is this. Was that suffering more than Paul could handle? Was he so far at the the end of his rope like we sometimes feel that that he looked up and he said, Lord, this is going to have to be you because my ability to take care of these things that you've called me to cannot happen in my own strength. It's beyond my ability to handle? He gives us the answer. This is where we start. 2 Corinthians 1, if you've already turned there. 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9. He he himself gives us the answer. Read along here, verses 8 and 9. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers. This is the beginning of that same book where he lists those sufferings later. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And he says this, listen. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our own strength, he says, there's the answer, that we despaired of life itself. He says, verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He was so burdened and sapped of strength, he says, beyond our strength, he says, that they were sure that they were going to die. And then keep reading in verse 9. Listen to what he says next. But this was to make us rely, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. (laughs) Hello, there's our answer. Paul perceived that he was experiencing suffering, even to the point of death, so that he would have to depend 100% on the God who raises the dead, he says. Paul is saying, if I'm going to survive this struggle... If I'm going to do what I'm called to do by God is going to have to be from the same exact power that rose Jesus from the dead because this is beyond my ability to handle it, he's saying. If there's a way out of this mess that I am in, it will have to be by the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. Friends, when that's where you are, then you know that you are doing what God has called you to do because until that time you can handle it you go ahead and handle it if you if you are in full dependence upon God to provide strength and courage that is how you know that you are fighting life's battles like a kingdom warrior in ways that accord and fit with this book that fit with what Paul was experiencing and living And we're not just talking about verbalizing Christianese or platitudes to others on a bumper sticker like trying to convince yourself and saying, yeah, I'm just just having to rely on God. We're talking about end of my rope struggle expressed through pain and suffering and tears so that you are at the end of your ability. So you're saying, I I cannot handle this, Lord. You are going to have to do something about this For me, the circumstances, because everything else I've tried doesn't cut it. And Paul says that God has put us there so that we would not rely on self, but on God. (laughs) So the popular notion that God will never give us more than we can handle is in reality a falsehood. It's a lie. It's something we wish were true. God puts us in places that demand that he is dependent upon. That's just, that's just what the Christian life is. And to try to talk ourselves out of it, is that Paul's ministry? Is that his life? Is that what we see in Scripture? In fact, all of life, if you're truly living, is a situation that you cannot handle. I'm not just making this up. Look at John fifteen five. You don't have to turn there with me. But when Jesus says this in John fifteen five, He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. This is one of those places where I don't think we take the full force of it like it's really meant. When it says that, I think He actually means, apart from Me, you can't do jack squat. He says later on, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. And in Scripture, Paul took great pains to clearly communicate that his, on the surface, his supposed handling of anything was in reality God's handling of everything. And he communicated that way. And he said, the success I have in ministry, this cannot possibly be something I did because I've gone through this and I've gone through this and I've gone through this and I've gone through this. And gone through this. I'm not handling all that. He was very clear to communicate that his supposed handling of anything was in reality God's handling of everything, which is why 1 Corinthians ten thirteen exists. Not to make us think that God will give us, never give us more than we can handle, but to remind us that we can't handle anything without him to remind us that we cannot handle anything without complete and utter dependence upon God's Spirit. And if you're living in complete dependence upon God's Spirit, then you will know, then you full well know that you are not the one handling the situation. If you don't have it handy, turn there. It's just a a bit, a smidge before 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We're going to start looking at this here in just a second. Let me set the context a bit It comes from a very specific context to which Paul is writing. And this is key. This is why that general way of saying God will never give us more than we can handle doesn't come from the verse it's supposed to come from. Uh, This is a very specific context to which Paul was writing. He was writing to new Christians in the city of Corinth. And they had come from this pagan society uh, where social convention was to do as you please, no rules, uh, sit and worship at the idols of, of, of sex, drugs, and rock and roll as much as you want. There were no limits, so familiar to us now. The Corinthian Christians thought that their new freedom in Christ meant that they could still participate in any and all of those uh, social conventions of the world they had previously previously been a part of and involved in and still enjoy this new freedom. Like, Like it's cool for us to do that and still follow Jesus and enjoy the freedom. They wanted to live this double life. So before this specific verse, Paul had been warning them. He'd been warning them and saying, you can't do that. You can't live that double life. He's been warning them. And here at verse 13, it takes a turn from warning to encouragement, from warning to encouragement. In fact, look at verse 12, the immediately preceding verse. This is warning still. It says, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. He was saying to these Corinthian uh, believers, you're not going to be able to not sit at those idols Unless you're following Christ alone. You can't do that by yourself, he was saying. He was saying, warning them, take heed lest you fall. And so the specific context here is about temptation. And that's why the encouragement starts at verse 13. Look at this in verse 13. It says, No temptation. That's the specific context that sets the pattern for the whole verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What he's saying there is uh, what you're experiencing in life is not new. The temptations you're facing in life are the same temptations uh, that all people experience and have experienced. And even though you may feel alone in them, I mean, that's what the evil one wants us to think, right? That you're alone in them. No one else struggles with this. (laughs) It must just be you. Even though you may feel alone in these temptations, don't buy into that lie, is what Paul is saying. All people experience the same temptations to sin. And he's trying to encourage them as believers. So the situation in which you are now being tempted to turn back to your previous idols is not new. That's nothing new. We all experience this. But take heart, he says. Look at this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man God is faithful. Take heart in the God who is faithful. He sort of declares it. He declares it as the foundation of faith and truth that he's setting up that gives us that gives us the ability to get out of temptation. He says God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And there's the phrase, beyond your ability. There's the phrase where the sort of Christianese comes from. That's where the misused maxim mostly comes from, there uh, specifically. But remember that what Paul is communicating here is that God's faithfulness provides a way from temptation in a specific context. God's faithfulness doesn't take you away from general suffering, which is why we can't apply that statement to the Christian life. In fact,. I would say there's more truth in saying God will let you experience more than you can handle. So what Paul is communicating here is that God's faithfulness provides an escape. That's what he says here. With the temptation, he, meaning the God who is faithful, this is the rest of verse 13 here, but with the temptation to sin, God will provide the way of escape. He always provides an escape hatch. Not a way out of suffering but out of temptation. He says, With the temptation He will also provide the way of escape. By the way, the temptation doesn't come from God. With the temptation that comes from the evil one, God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Here's the point of the whole verse. In each and every situation in which you find yourself, there is a way to persevere without having to resort to sin. Simple simple fact of the matter is that's what this verse means. In each and every situation in which you find yourself, and this is the encouragement Paul's giving here, you can follow the heart of God to get out of that temptation. That's an encouragement for the believer. It doesn't matter what life throws my way in each and every circumstance. I can do something that fits, that accords with God's heart. That doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. You're not going to experience pain. There aren't going to be hard choices. That's not, that's not what he's saying. The encouragement is that in each and every situation there is a way to respond that reflects the heart of God. The key to know is that that escape doesn't mean you handling it. Our trust is in God's faithfulness to us. From that place of complete trust in God, you can no escape from temptation. So here's my question. What would it look like if we were a community of people who in each and every situation in which we found ourselves had as our primary filter for response the heart of God. It, what would it look like if as a community of people when, when put in a situation where there's struggle and pain and difficulty and mess or there's a decision to make or you're tempted to sin uh, that the, the, the filter your response is the heart of God it would look like for example it would look like lots of things but let me just give a few it would look like a group of people whose humility stood front and center because it would establish listen listen God's adequacy is the place from which I choose what is good and right it would, it would say, this life you see that does what is good and right, God did that in me. This is, this is credit to God kind of way of living. That's what humility is. It's giving credit where it's due. It's not this false thing of like, oh, you know, no big deal. It's giving credit to where it's due. It would look like also, for example, a community of people who comfort others in their affliction. Not like, hey, I don't really have the time or the energy or the effort to hear your problems. Um, God will never give you more than you can handle. Cool? See ya. It would be a community of people who reflect the heart of God, who sent Jesus in the flesh, to die for us, incarnated, to reveal Himself to us. And that's what we're called to. To reflect that to others. And so to comfort somebody in their affliction is to enter into, meaningfully, their suffering. (laughs) If If we were a community of people like that, people in the world, who don't know Jesus, would want to be a part of that. We would become a people of communal, community witness. We would be people who, when someone is broken in despair, struggling at the end of their rope, no way to fix it, We'd be people who, when someone is despair, instead of responding with uh, sayings that to easily communicate apathy and create distance, we would respond with connection that reflects God's heart to enter into the pain and suffering that people experience. What did you think following Christ was going to look like? We're talking about the Christ who entered into our world, died on the cross, and we're called to follow. When we are people who reflect that heart, the heart of God, to enter into hurt, pain, suffering, the shrapnel of sin in the world, when we are people entering into that along with Jesus Christ, The kinds of things where we say to people, you should be able to handle that. Become, let me live with you and share in it with you. Just like Jesus. And when that happens in our lives, the glory can only be given to God. Would that we become a people like that. Let's pray.